You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. Our first lesson is from 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 17, and you can find that on page 1016 of the Pew Bible. And as we love to say each week, if you do not have a Bible of your own at home, please take one with you after the service as our gift. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The word of the Lord. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Our gospel reading this morning is Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. You can find it on page 810 of your Bible. This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. Well, once again, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. For those of you who are new and visiting for the first time, welcome to Redeemer. Glad you're here. I see some people that I I don't know or haven't met yet. Um, If we haven't met, my name is Dan. I'm very grateful to serve here as a pastor. And by way of orientation, we as a church, both locally and also as a church participating with the global church around the world, are in a season of the year called Ordinary Time. And during this season, we are pursuing a teaching series on the Beatitudes of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And we've titled this series Paradox Manifesto, not in an attempt to be edgy or cute or clever, uh, but rather because this is a two-word phrase that really does accurately summarize what the Beatitudes are. The Beatitudes of Jesus are paradoxical to our ears. They do not follow the logic of the kingdom of this world, but rather they follow the logic of the kingdom of God. The Beatitudes are also something of a manifesto. They are a public declaration of the values of the new regime, the new world order that Jesus has established. And so the Beatitudes are not cute. They're not quaint. They're not easy. They're not polite. They bear this sharp edge towards the strong and the powerful, but they also bear a soothing comfort towards the weak and the struggling. And so the Beatitudes hit you differently depending on who you are and depending on your kind of place and posture and position in the world. 
Thus far, we've talked about the paradoxes of gentleness, or sorry, poverty, grief, gentleness, appetite, mercy, purity, and peace. That's what we've covered so far in this series. And today is the paradox of persecution. The paradox of persecution. As we begin, let me say a prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that right now the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So the text reads, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a lot of loaded words in this one relatively simple sentence. And as we talk about it, we're going to do so from a couple different angles. And for those of you who, who like taking notes and knowing ahead of time where things are going, here's your outline. Here's where things are going. Part one is going to be persecution as a missionary encounter. Persecution as a missionary encounter. Part two will be our three normal responses to avoid the missionary encounter. Okay? And then part three will be simple practices that move us towards a missionary encounter. All right, so let's begin with persecution as a, as a missionary encounter. What is persecution? Uh, for the first 280 years of church history, from AD 33 to AD 313, physical persecution was a constant and imminent threat for the church, for early followers of Jesus. It ended, that season ended, in AD 313 with what was called the Edict of Milan, where Emperor Constantine granted Christians legal protection from physical harm. This was a new thing. So for the first time in history, Christianity was legalized from a state and and political perspective. Now, 12 years later from that, um, over 300 pastors gathered from all over the Roman Empire, and they gathered in, this, gathered in the city of Nicaea in what is today modern-day Turkey, and they gathered for a conference. This is the first time it was possible for pastors and Christians to gather sort of publicly. And among them was an old man named Paphnutius. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And he was a pastor who was in his, his kind of last years of life, and he had been tortured for his faith, and his right eye had been gouged out uh, while he was serving in prison. And at this council, this conference of, of pastors, the emperor showed up. Emperor Constantine entered the room, and normally the arrival of the Roman, Empire, of Rome, Roman emperor for a gathering of Christians would have been a cause for terror. Uh, but Constantine entered the room, he approached Paphnutius, he embraced the old man, and he kissed the empty eye socket on his face. And in this moment, something symbolic was happening that demonstrated a transition in world history. The Roman emperor was embracing, and even with his body, dignifying the persecution that the church had experienced at the hands of the Roman Empire. Something was changing. Listen to this description of the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. This is a a quote from a writer from this time in history. Many were scarred with beatings and floggings. Several were missing eyes. Others were missing arms. Paul of Neo Caesarea's hands dangled uselessly since he had been forced to grip red-hot iron. Others had lost eyes. Others had lost legs. There was not one in the assembly that was not physically scarred in some way. In other words, when the church gathered, it was the people who had been persecuted, and everyone bore on their body the marks of that persecution. Now, 
This is important to note. Whenever the church encounters pre-Christian societies, whenever the church has a missionary encounter with a pre-Christian society, and by pre-Christian I mean a society that has not encountered the Christian faith before, physical persecution often happens. We see this in church history in the Roman Empire. We see it as the gospel spreads to Africa, to Japan, to other parts of Europe, to China. Wherever the church goes for the first time, there is physical persecution. But listen, that's not where we live. We live in what we might call a post-Christian society. Western Europe, Russia, Canada, the United States, places that where the Christian faith has been the dominant faith for a season, for a period of history, but the now is on the decline. Where the, where the general sense amongst society is the Christian faith has been tried and we don't like it anymore. And now we're moving on to something else. You might call that a post-Christian society. Persecution still occurs in post-Christian societies, but it tends to be of a different sort. It tends to not be physical. It tends to be mental, emotional, psychological, relational, and economic. Post-Christian societies have learned from the Roman Empire. And you know what they learned? The power of martyrdom. A public martyr is a very powerful symbol. A public martyr has the power to undermine the state. And so in a post-Christian society, you're not going to have a lot of public martyrs. You're not going to have a lot of public physical persecution because as much as the church has tried to learn from church history, often the state has learned, has been a much better student of church history. And it's not going to rehearse that again. And so Christians are not going to be given the public witness. Instead, persecution will be quiet secretive, subtle. It will be quiet, not loud. It will be anticlimactic, not dramatic. In other words, persecution today isn't going to make a great story. There's just not a lot to tell about it, but that doesn't mean it's not real. Post-Christian societies like the USA are often persecuting environments, but the antagonism is more like a steady and persistent headwind that is constantly blowing against you. It's not like a tornado or a hurricane. It's not a giant storm. Those, tend to, those storms leaves a, leave a wake of destruction in their path, right? But a persistent headwind is silent, invisible, but effective. Uh, I don't presume many of us in this room have spent much time sailing, like on an old-fashioned sailboat. Um, but this is one of the things that I did growing up. My dad loved sailing. And one of the few things that he wanted to kind of instill in each one of his kids was, you got to know how to sail. If you're going to be a Murata, you got to know how to sail. So me and my dad would spend time on a sailboat. And one of the things that I learned as a kid is that you cannot sail into the wind, not directly. But what you can do is you can tack into the wind, which means you sail at an angle towards the wind, and then you cross, you sail at the other angle. And this way you make steady progress into the wind. But sailing into the wind is so much more difficult than sailing with the wind. And if you're on the water and you're trying to make your way into the wind, every, your boat rocks a little bit more, it makes the whole, the whole ride is just rougher and slower and more uncomfortable. And as a sailor, everything in you just wants to turn the boat and just sail the other way where it's easier. Sailing with the wind is calm and fast. Sailing against the wind is rough and slow. Now, the text says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. So it's worth taking the time to understand that word righteousness because that's a, just a chronically misunderstood word. Righteousness, let's be clear, is not how great you are. So the text is not saying, blessed are those who are persecuted for being awesome. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for just being the great person that they are, for being virtuous. Righteousness is not the same thing as virtue. Righteousness is right obedience to God. Righteousness is really linked with obedience, obedience to God. The way the Old Testament uses that word is it, it, here just a couple examples. It says, Abraham believed God, he acted on that belief, and it was counted to him as righteousness. His, his obedience, his life of obedience to God was a righteous life. Or Psalm chapter one puts it this way, blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and then that person is said to be following the way of the righteous. So let's just think together. Why would righteous obedience to God be cause for persecution? Well, it happens like this. Two intersection points, two moments of encounter. First intersection point would be where local power commands what God forbids. And then the other intersection point would be the opposite of that, where local power forbids what God commands. You follow me? Where power commands what God forbids or power forbids what God commands. So an example of power commanding what God forbids, you might think uh, with me in our social environment today, you must affirm a certain kind of sexual ethic, a certain mode of identity, a certain use of military force, or a certain form of resistance to immigrants. Like, this is what the state or the local power commands, but the Christian faith actually leads you in a different direction. It's a moment of intersection. It's a missionary encounter. It's a friction point. Or, on the other side, where power forbids what God actually commands. You might think of things like proclaiming the good news of the gospel, proselytizing, evangelizing. Or you might think about showing hospitality to foreigners, foreigners the state says are not welcome, right? This is where God has given a command to his people, show hospitality to strangers, proclaim the good news of the gospel, but the state actually forbids it. Now, this actually goes far beyond the state. And so if you're thinking for a moment, like this is getting a little bit political, it's actually not meant to be political. This is comprehensive because these kinds of power structures exist, not just at the, you know, kind of national government level or at the state level or at the local civic level. They also exist in workplaces. They exist in families. Wherever power is being leveraged, there are always things that are commanded that God forbids and always things forbidden that God commands. These are moments of, of missionary encounter. They are friction points where the ethic of the Bible runs counter to the ethic of the day. And these moments of missionary encounter, hear me if you can, are absolutely critical. They are crucial. Often, it does, they don't feel crucial because it doesn't feel like the gospel's at stake or they often feels kind of like small, maybe sort of something secondary or trivial. And that's because these moments of missionary encounter for us they happen on like a random Tuesday afternoon. They don't happen on a big stage with a spotlight on you and all the world holding its breath to see how you'll respond. No, it just happens in the normal day in, day out moments of life. It happens in casual conversation with a coworker over lunch. It happens with a neighbor at a barbecue. These are the moments of missionary encounter. And it is oh so tempting in these small moments of friction, these small moments of missionary encounter, to begin to make small compromises. And we tell ourselves, at least, let me not put this on you, I'll just put it on me. I tell myself in these moments that um, if a really big, obvious public confrontation were to happen, I would be faithful and clear about where my allegiance lies. After all, I'm a priest, I kind of have to, it's like part of the job, right? But I tell myself that in those small moments, I need to just kind of play nice and get along. Don't rock the boat. But C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters, 
has something to say about those small moments. And here's, here's what he says. He writes, it does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the person away from the light out into nothing. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. What he's, when I read that, I realized, oh, that's exactly how an abuser tends to groom their victim. When an abuser is grooming their, their potential victim, what they do is they get their victim keeping small secrets, so eventually they're staged to keep a big secret. They get their victim to start making small moral compromises as a way of prepping for a giant moral compromise. And Satan is the master abuser. He grooms his victims in such subtle, imperceptible ways that they become complicit, active participants in their own abuse. Now, most of these small friction points, these missionary encounter moments, often happen around symbols. They don't exclusively happen around symbols, but often they do. They have historically. In the uh, ancient Roman Empire, the place that happened for the early church was around this um, this cultural practice of burning incense to Caesar, where all Roman, all Roman citizens, citizens in good standing, were required at certain times and in public ways to burn incense as a way of paying homage to Caesar. It's how you show that you're a good citizen, that you're part of the team, that you're part of the social fabric. And those early Christians were the ones who were just so stubborn. They just wouldn't play along. They wouldn't go along with the common practice. And so you got to imagine there were so many moments, so many moments of encounter where a Roman soldier or some sort of civic authority would say, look, you can believe in Jesus in your heart all you want. <laughs> just keep believing in Jesus in your heart. I just need you to do this thing. Just do this symbol to show that you're like part of the team here. And of course, what first followers of Jesus were being invited to do was just a small moment of symbolic compromise, right? And of course, so many Christians went to their death in the Colosseum for something small and symbolic, not burning incense to the emperor. We also see this when um, Christian missionaries first make their way to Japan. Um, one of the symbols that Christians were required to do by the state was to place their feet on top of a symbol of Jesus. Just do it with your foot. Just put your foot on top of this to show that, like, this isn't the one you're actually worshiping. You can still believe in your heart all you want, but you just need to do this with your body. And so many Japanese Christians went to their death because they wouldn't put their foot in a certain place, right? Now, if that all seems a little bit crazy today, just think about the other ways that we use symbols. Let's think about this symbol. This is a wedding ring. It lives on my hand. Wedding rings are a symbol. Now, I have a marriage to my high school sweetheart, Rachel, who I love dearly. And I have loved dearly since I was like 17, okay? So I'm pretty committed to her. This is not the same thing as my marriage. I have a love for her in my heart. I have a love for her in practice in our, in our life together. This is a symbol. Now, if I were challenged to do something against this symbol, it would be tempting and easy for me to think, well, this symbol is not my real marriage, right? Like I can still have my real marriage. And so if I'm, if I'm required through some sort of course of force to degrade this symbol, no big deal, right? Except think of, if you're married, think about your spouse doing that. Think about your spouse throwing away the wedding ring. Think about your spouse stomping on a wedding ring. 
and think about the image that will leave in your mind. And think about your spouse then coming back from that encounter and going, you know, I, I just kind of needed to do it to kind of get out of that situation. <laughs> uh, but we're still good, right? And your spouse would kind of go, no, <laughs> not still good. This marriage that we have is public. There's a public realm to being in covenant with somebody, right? Same thing to relationship with a child or any, any relationship that is bound by a covenant of love has a public and symbolic aspect to it. Look, the testimony of every power throughout history has been this. We don't care what you believe in your heart as long as you participate in the symbols of society, right? These are moments of friction. These are places of missionary encounter. And they are often, not exclusively, but often symbolic. Now, the text says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so it's worth having some clarity, not just about persecution and righteousness, but, but the kingdom of heaven. Here is the way most people tend to read this text, okay? I'm going to translate into like normal speak. Um, everybody who has a rough go of it in this life is going to be okay in the end because there's big rewards waiting for you in the afterlife, Okay, is that how the text sounds to you? It sounds that way to me too. Do you know that is actually not the correct reading of the text? Because the kingdom of heaven, according to Jesus, is not just this thing that waits for you after you die. It's actually a, something that enters the world right now. Jesus arrives on the scene. You know what he says? He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus somehow in his own imagination believed that the kingdom of heaven was happening right now, that it was something that his followers could participate in in their lived lives right now. And so the kingdom of heaven that is given to those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake is, is not this future reward. It's not just delayed gratification. It's actually a joy that is received right now. This is why the Apostle Paul writes such confusing things that don't make any sense to Americans. He writes things like, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Have you ever read that? Some, know, not everybody's read the Bible, and that's totally fine. But if you've read the Bible before and you've encountered sentences like that, I'm sure you've thought, as have I, like, I could pretend to know what that means, but I don't think I really know what that means. Because going through hard times is mostly not fun, right? I would say it's all not fun. So why is the text telling me that it's joyful? This is the paradox paradoxical as it may sound, it's joy because the person suffering persecution is experiencing, even in their own terrible circumstances, a kind of alignment and integration in their being with God. Uh, Richard Wormbrand, a Romanian priest who spent 14 years in prison under the Romanian com communist regime, puts it this way. He talks about what that experience was like. He writes, it was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this would receive a severe beating. And a number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. So we accepted the communist terms. It was a deal. We preached. They beat us. We were happy preaching. They were happy beating us. So everybody was happy. <laughs> so that's, that's, not, that's not ancient history. That's recent history. Richard Wormbrand was um, freed from prison. His ransom was about $10,000, not that expensive. 
He was brought to the United States. He testified before Congress here. Part of his testimony was actually removing his shirt so that congressmen and women could actually see the scars that he still bore on his body from those beatings, which he evidently happily received. This is persecution as a missionary encounter. This is leaning into the friction points. Now, if that's persecution as a missionary, missionary encounter, let's just reflect for a moment about our normal responses to avoid that missionary encounter. And just listen, if you can, I'm not putting this on you. I'm not putting any of this on you. Let me just kind of reflect on my own tendencies and see if you maybe fall into some of the same categories here. Okay, normal response number one, retaliation, fighting back, beginning a persecution of my own. The church, sadly, has a long, tragic history of being persecutors and not only being persecuted. You might think about the Spanish Inquisition. You might think about the oppression of Jewish people. You might think about the Crusades. You might think about Puritan witch hunts. You might think about Catholics against Protestants and Protestants against Catholics, right? The history of the church is littered with Christians who complained about the unfairness of persecution. And then when it was their turn to occupy positions of power, used their power to persecute those who were their former enemies. Yeah, this is normal. It's not good, but it's normal. You might think about more recently the Capitol Hill riots on January 6th, where there's active physical aggression in the name of Jesus using the symbol of the cross, not as, as we talked about last week, the symbol of peacemaking that it is meant to be for a follower of Jesus, but actually as a symbol of violence, a return to the original meaning of the symbol of the cross. It looks like lawsuits and counter lawsuits. It looks like arguing and bickering and slandering in online forums. It always sounds something like the ends justify the means. Here's this medium bad thing we have to do in order to secure a good thing for our people, for our way of life. We have to fight this way in order to protect our faith. That's what it sounds like. So retaliation, the first normal response to avoid the missionary encounter of persecution. Okay, second normal response. Uh, totally opposite, self-pity. Second normal response, self-pity. This is where you achieve that coveted status of the noble victim. Wouldn't you like to be a noble victim? Turns out everybody does these days. Our society is one ever-accelerating race to the bottom to see who can achieve that noble victim status. Because if you can get other people to agree that you have been oppressed more than anybody else, you have the moral upper hand, right? Now everything you say and do is unquestionable. Self-pity is, now listen, it's interesting. The Bible actually doesn't say a lot about self-pity. We see it embodied in the life of King Saul in the very beginning of the nation state of Israel. But other than that, it doesn't pop up very often in the Bible. And here's why. Self-pity is actually a subset of pride. Self-pity is pride that has encountered a disappointing circumstance. <laughs> That's what self-pity is. And actually, the Bible has an awful lot to say about pride which means the Bible has an awful lot to say about self-pity. Self-pity is, I deserve better. Self-pity, as one author puts it, self-pity is easily the most destructive of the non-pharmaceutical narcotics. It is addictive. It gives momentary pleasure and separates the victim from reality. Self-pity tastes so saccharine sweet. 
Self-pity is you have a difficult interaction with somebody at work or with a family member or a church or like in some realm and you leave and, and on your way home, you begin to congratulate yourself on how hard it is to be you. If only people understood what it was like to be you, then they wouldn't treat you so poorly, right? And that sick, thick syrup of self-pity initially just soothes that pain, right? But it's toxic in the end. As another author put it a little bit more aggressively, self-pity is spiritual suicide. You know, it's interesting that our society values the victim. It's really, it's fascinating to me that we're living in a moment in history where the noble victim has been elevated as like, this is the thing you most want to be. And that's almost this kind of hangover for this like last, this kind of like fading remnant of the impact of the Christian faith in society. Uh, I was reading a a poem earlier this week called Self-Pity by D.H. Lawrence. And it's very short and it goes like this. I never saw a wild thing sorry for itself. A small bird will drop frozen dead from a bough without ever having felt sorry for itself. And when I read that, I thought, I spend so much of my time feeling sorry for myself. I can't afford to crank my thermostat a little bit higher in the winter and I'm like a little chilly and I feel sorry for myself, right? We are not the wild thing. We tend to use self-pity as a weapon. Self-pity seems to be a uniquely human attribute. You know, there's that old, that old saying, that old adage, hurting people hurt people. And so you need to pay really close attention to this because this will control your life in ways that you're not aware of if you're not careful. It takes self-awareness to examine self-pity within yourself. And so you might, might want to start by asking yourself questions. Where does life feel unfair? Where do other people have it easier than you? Where are you not getting the respect or the praise or the intention or the affirmation that you deserve? Okay, first normal response, retaliation. And thus, those of us who are brawlers love this, right? Others of us, self-pity, retreating into feeling sorry for ourselves. And then finally, I think this is like just the big catch-all category for American Christians. And I'm gonna use an old-fashioned word, The old-fashioned word is acedia. The definition might go something like spiritual and mental apathy. And this manifests itself in sort of like, this sermon is wearing me out. It's too intense. It's too pointed. I don't like it. Dan, can you please talk about something more uplifting and encouraging, right? So if thus far you haven't liked the sermon, this might kind of be your zone. Or you might just not like the sermon. That's fine. But this, for me, I don't like listening to teaching like this because it wears me out. It's so not chill, right? This, uh, this approach to faith, when I, when I take this on, this approach to faith is a kind of spiritual therapy. And therefore, any aspect of faith that causes discomfort or pain or suffering must not be good faith. Peter Lightheart puts it this way. Our age is skeptical of martyrs for the same reason that Romans were skeptical of martyrs. Civilized behavior, human behavior, has been so identified with the virtues and values of liberal modernity, especially the values of ironic detachment and tolerance, that anyone who defies those values seems to be, quote, antisocial in the deepest meaning of the word. In other words, this kind of talk is bad for society. Like, 
can't we all just get along? Why are we talking about persecution? Now, let's kind of summarize here. These three normal responses to that missionary encounter, those friction points, retaliation, self-pity, acedia. And listen, if you can, let's think for just a moment about Jesus's own missionary encounter. Jesus, if anybody else was, was persecuted for righteousness sake, which is to say Jesus was persecuted for his obedience to God the Father. Now, this... (laughs) As soon as we say that, we have to recognize this is actually not the dominant narrative about Jesus. The dominant narrative that people tend to believe about Jesus, both outside the church and inside the church, goes something like this. Jesus was nailed to a tree for saying how great it would be to be nice to people for a change, right? That's actually quoting Douglas Adams from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Jesus was not crucified for telling people to be chill and nice and kind. It was obedience to the Father and a refusal to disobey, to compromise his loyalty that landed him on trial before Pontius Pilate. And Jesus did not retaliate. Scripture says, as a sheep led to the slaughter, he was silent. Jesus' disciples retaliated, right? Christ is arrested. The first thing disciples do is they start throwing punches. They're fighting back. Peter famously drew a sword and cut off a Roman soldier's ear. What a weird story. And what did Jesus say? Peter, I feel loved right now. Thanks for defending me, right? No, Jesus says, Peter, put away your sword. This is the rabbi who taught radical nonviolence. Turn the other cheek. If someone forces you to do labor for them, go willingly. Serve your enemies. Honor those who persecute you. Jesus did not retaliate. Neither did Jesus give in to self-pity. Jesus was not a doormat. He was not weak. Jesus was not a victim. He chose to go willingly. You never heard Jesus complaining about things being unfair. Question for the class, were things unfair? They were. Did Jesus complain about it? He did not. John chapter 10, Jesus says, I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I also have authority to take it up again. Jesus was not dragged to the cross, kicking and screaming. He walked there. Neither did Jesus give in to Assyria. And Jesus never said what us reasonable 21st century people would have said. Like, faced with a trial, what would I have said? I probably would have said something like, guys, this whole crucifixion business is a little extreme. Can we just take it down a peg, okay? Can't we just agree to disagree? Can we talk it out? Can't we all just relax? Let's have a drink. Let's have three drinks. Let's get some Thai takeout. Like, let's, let's, this religious intensity is stressing me out. No, Jesus dies to the kingdom of the world. This is to say he dies to the kingdom of retaliation, the kingdom of self-pity, the kingdom of acedia. He dies to the kingdom of the world so that he might bring into reality the kingdom of heaven. This is why the gospel of Jesus and only the gospel of Jesus can give you the resource to not be crushed by persecution, to not retaliate against persecution, but to endure persecution, and ultimately to overcome. How does the gospel give you this? How does the gospel of Jesus actually give you the resource to endure persecution? It works like this. It gives you this this internal safety when the world becomes unsafe. It gives you a safety within you that you have in love with Jesus, meaning Christ has loved you so deeply and so purely and so fully that you have a safety in relationship with Jesus 
that is not touchable or can't be threatened by the outside. Therefore, you have a kind of peace within you that you take with you everywhere you go, especially when, and it comes into play especially when, life is not safe. This is how you get courage. This is actually the wellspring of courage in order to walk into and bear those friction points. This is how you have the courage to have a missionary encounter. It's an inner sanctuary where you become a temple of the Holy Spirit of Jesus. And persecution can't threaten that. If you look at the cover art on the front of the liturgy that you received when you walked in, you'll see a painting there. And it's a painting of early followers of Jesus in the Colosseum. There they are. You've, you've probably seen some sort of artistic depiction of this before. I think the title of this painting is absurd. Triumph of Faith. This is not a triumphant picture. The title of this painting and what is depicted in this painting are a paradox, are they not? This is a picture of people losing. The title says this is a picture of people winning. This is the paradox of persecution. Now, in order to lean into this and to understand it more deeply, you have to understand that the Christian life is what we might call a Eucharistic life. If you need to, if you, to, in order to understand this, if you need a, a metaphor or a word picture, something to help this spiritual reality become real to you, you don't have to look any further than this table. The Eucharist, Holy Communion of the Lord's Supper, is a meal that remembers and commemorates the sacrifice of Jesus who was persecuted unto death. Think about how crazy this is. The church reenacts the persecution of Jesus every week. Every week, we reenact the persecution of Jesus, and we pray a prayer over this meal, and it's a prayer of blessing. We say a blessing over the persecuted life of Jesus, who was persecuted because of his obedience to God. And this meal is then meant to have a formative effect upon us. It forms our imaginations so that we begin to see our lives as something like this meal. So we not only receive the Eucharist here in this sanctuary, but we actually become these little sanctuaries, these little temples of the Holy Spirit, who then go out those doors, out into the world, to live a Eucharistic life, a life that is blessed, a life that is broken, a life that is poured out, a life that is given for others. St. Augustine put it this way. He writes, Behold the mystery of your salvation. Behold what you are. Behold what you receive and behold what you become. What you receive is what you become. St. Ignatius puts it a different way. He, he wrote, I am God's wheat and I shall be ground by the teeth of beasts that I might become the pure bread of Christ. This is what the Apostle Paul is getting at when he writes those crazy sentences in the Bible in the book of Romans. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. You know, the church has actually known this for a very long time. Nothing that we're saying is new or novel or unique or creative. All of this is a part of the great tradition of the people of God. The church has known this in various times and places and embodied this throughout the history of the church. Whenever the church is living well, is following Jesus well, the church is bearing a Eucharistic-shaped life. Now, here in the United States, 
there's a subset of people that are least likely to understand this. And here I'm going to be hard on myself for a moment. The category of person least likely to understand this is a white Protestant. I am the kind of person least likely to understand this. Catholics are more likely to understand this because Catholics have gone through many seasons in the United States where they're not popular. The black church is likely to understand this because the black church knows what it means to bear up under persecution here in Richmond. Ethnic minority churches know what it's like to bear up under this and to view their lives as blessed and broken and poured out and given. White Protestants in the United States tend not to know this. Not exclusively, I'm not calling anybody out here individually, but as a subset of society, we tend to be least likely to know this because we've never been the minority. Not here. Other places, yes, but not here. And so this is a wonderful invitation not to feel shame, not shame in you or me or anybody, but a wonderful moment of invitation to learn from our brothers and sisters in the church who actually do have it as part of their heritage to bear up under persecution, to live that Eucharistic life that is given away for the sake of others. Oh, what a wonderful thing it is that the true church of Jesus is not actually divided racially or ethnically, but rather is united in faith. And so even if you do not have this as your heritage individually, if you are a baptized member of Christ's body, you are baptized into a church that does. And therefore, you have roots, you've been adopted into those roots, you've been grafted onto that tree, but now you have it as part of your roots to bear up under persecution and to live faithfully going forward and to embrace those missionary encounters and not to flee from them. Now, let's end with just a few practices. What does this look like? Let's get very tangible here. First practice, the place where this all starts would be to let your faith be publicly known. In other words, to not only believe in Christ in your heart, but to live out and embody, even symbolically, a life of a follower of Jesus. Some of you are already doing this really well, and it's a beautiful thing. Some of you, because you've done this well, you actually have encountered those friction points, those moments of missionary encounter. Others of you have had a private faith, maybe even a robust private faith for a long time, but you actually have yet to take that step of living publicly as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus. And maybe you've been hesitant to do that because you begin to suspect what that might cost. You know it's not going to land you in the Colosseum, but it might lose you a promotion, right? or might lose you a friend. There will be a cost. And so that first step is to let your faith be publicly known. And before you begin to take a lot of aggressive steps in that direction, seek the wise counsel of other people who have already done this. Invite some others into the conversation. Great conversation topic at small group this week. Now, not only is faith public, Faith also must be humble. Let the friction points come to you. Don't seek them out. If any of you walk out of here thinking, all right, I got to go like rustle some stuff up and get persecuted. Oh my goodness, knock it off. That's so dumb. Don't do that. You're not seeking friction, but neither are you running away in fear. You're living a life that is open to a missionary encounter. Faith is public and humble. Then third, it's gentle. 
Don't retaliate. Never use your words or actions to push back. It's not, that's not weakness, y'all. It's strength. It takes far more strength to take a hit and not hit back than it does to get into a fight. Fourth, confidence. Let your faith be confident. Don't give in to self-pity. Suffering with the Lord is an honor. If you go down this path, if you begin to take all of these steps, you will begin to encounter more hardship. Life's going to get harder. It's not going to get easier. And you're going to get a lot more dependent on the people sitting around you. You will, you'll be tempted towards self-pity. Don't give into it. It's a privilege. And then finally, bravery. Let your faith be courageous. Don't give in to fear of losing status. Again, if you take these steps, you begin to put this into practice, you will lose status. Your life from the outside will appear less blessed. And yet, as you lose the kingdom of the world, you gain the kingdom of heaven. Friends, Christ's life was offered for you. And in the safety and security, and sanctuary of the love of Jesus. Your life can now be offered up back to him. A sacrifice for a sacrifice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would find our sanctuary and our rest and our safety in you, and from that, discover a wellspring of courage to go and to live gently and humbly and confidently and bravely and publicly as your church. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.